So love is not a product. Love is not a commodity. You can't manufacture it. We can't just say, okay, everybody, now it's time to practice love, so the sermon's over. Just go practice love. Our culture is kind of caught up with this generic term, love. And we've kind of gotten consumed with this idea of love, to be loved and to love. And so we have Hollywood writing all these stories about love, and we have people who are dream of falling in love and being in love. And yet, we have not divorced love from the world's operating system. And we've talked quite a bit about this in this sermon series, that the world's operating system is a system of selfishness. It's selfishness to the core. It's thinking of yourself first. And so we incorporate this idea of love in with the world's operating system. And we have a selfish point of view with love. And we think that love is really all about me. Love is about my dreams, my fulfill, or my desires fulfilled. Love is about me getting my happiness. Love is a feeling that I get when I'm around people, and I desire to have this feeling. But usually when we refer to love, we actually refer to this chemical being released into your body that makes you feel good. And that's what we think love is. It's just a chemical reaction. And what happens when you start to date someone, your body releases this chemical. They tell you you're beautiful. You think, oh, I'm in love. And your body releases that chemical and you feel really good. But what happens when that chemical wears off? Well, you fall out of love. But you desire love, right? You were made in God's image, so you de- and God is love, so you desire love. So you go and you find someone else that makes you feel love. The same way. And we see people that become serial daters that are constantly burning through relationships because they just want this chemical reaction. And it is these very people that dream of being loved, that dream of being in love, that ultimately wreck love. Because they always think it is about them and it is about their own feelings. So is these very, this very notion of pursue love, be loved, that actually undermines love. It is those who love without expectation. Those who give love without expecting anything on return, that there is no return on your investment of love, that ultimately find love. Because they realize love is not about getting your desires fulfilled. Love is not about you getting what you want. Love is actually not about you feeling happy at all. Love is about you dying to yourself. It's not about getting what you want. It's not about feeling happy. It's about dying to your own desires so that you can do what is right for the other person no matter what, no matter how it affects you. The only way to love like this is to know God. And that is what we will talk about today as we continue our sermon series, Christ is Life. We're picking up in John, I should say 1 John. That's an important distinction. We're going to be turning to 1 John 4, 7. Love has been a major theme in 1 John. This section actually mentions the word 12 
times. So we're going to read from 7 all the way through 21, 12 times in 14 verses that the word love is going to be mentioned. This section has a very special focus on love. So let's pick up in verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he is in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Therefore, or sorry, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So when we first started this series, we talked about how John talks or writes in a spiral, and he's going to keep spiraling back around. And I think we see that very clearly in this section. He keeps spiraling back around to this idea of love, and he gets, it goes deeper and explains in a richer way what this love is. So he begins in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So let us love one another is an imperative. We talked about how there's very few imperatives throughout this letter. And, and we've run into another imperative here. Let us love one another. He's telling us, he's commanding us to love one another. I can't help but read this section and then think about John. If love is, you know, doing what is best for the other no matter what, and you think about John when, when he was walking with Jesus and they had just been rejected by a bunch of Samaritans, and John turns to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, let's, call some ra let's rain some fire down on him, right? I don't think that's love. <laughs> but John learned an important lesson as he walked with Jesus. I think John grew in love. He learned how to love. It's easy for us, I think, to, to be like that old John. To see someone doing wrong and see, still think the same thoughts. To see someone that we disagree with. Maybe it's someone we disagree with politically. Maybe it's someone that we disagree with theologically. Maybe it's someone that, that we know has committed a heinous crime and we just think, hey God, rain some fire down on them. By the way, I love them. No, we're, we're called to love in a different way. 
Jesus reprimanded John for that. It's interesting that this actually, this section on love comes right after the section on false teachers and false teacher identification. The false teachers needed to be handled with love. Now, that doesn't mean you can't address the false teaching. That doesn't mean that you can't uh, disagree with them. In fact, loving them actually is, or disagreeing with them is actually a way of loving them. If you see someone walking towards a cliff, to love them is to tell them, hey, you're walking towards a cliff. Dangerous theology, to love someone with dangerous theology, means that we correct dangerous theology. But the motivation should always be to correct the theology out of love, to correct the teaching out of love, not to condemn them, and not just correct them so we can puff ourselves up. That's not motivated, that's not acting out of love. So the, the motivation and, and what, how we should be handling it is to turn someone with false ideas of Christ to correct ideas of Christ. And the only way we can love people in this way is to be changed by God. So the claim here by John is that love comes from God and that it, the only way we can truly know love is knowing God. He is the very essence of love. He is love. He also perfectly models love. So the only way to truly know love is to know God. Yet most of us know someone who doesn't know God, and yet we would say knows love somehow, right? I'm sure most of us know an atheist, and we'd say, wow, they love their kids. I think there's some tension here between what the Word says to know God and to love and what we've seen. And sometimes I've seen people actually begin to question the word because they see what they think is attention. And I think the solution is that we are made in God's image. God is love. So we were created to love. We are created to desire love, to give love, and to receive love. So there is a certain amount that everyone on earth is going to desire love and is going to give love because they're image bearers of God. So everyone on earth will to some degree Look for love. But I think the reality is that the love we see in others is based on a world operating system of selfishness. So a mom that truly loves her kids, I would not question her love for her kids. The atheist mom that truly loves her kids, I would not question her love. But she's also getting something out of that love there is a certain amount of selfishness in that love. The atheist couple that remains married through thick and thin is still kind of getting something out of that love. And I think that there is still a certain amount of selfishness in that love. So the test of God's love, the test of uh, are you following God's love, isn't can you love those that you benefit from. It isn't can you love people that are easy to love. It isn't, can you love people that give something to you? Everyone loves the easy to love. The test isn't, can you love those that love you? The test is, can you love those that don't have anything to give back? Can you love those where there is no return on investment? Can you love those who might even cost you to love them. Jesus said, love your enemy. 
Jesus said, love those who persecute you. Jesus went on to, to love the unlovable of his culture. He loved the losers and the outcasts, the untouchables. He loved the unlovable. And he showed us a whole new level of what it means to love. And it isn't just about loving when it's convenient, but about loving all people at all times, even those we deem unlovable in our culture. And I think in our culture right now, in our, specifically in our Christian culture, there are people that we might deem unlovable. And yet God has called us to love them anyway. So in order to love like that, in order to love the unlovable, we have to be transformed. We cannot love this way and still be operating with the world's operating system. We have to be transformed from the inside out. And that is what God is doing when you put your faith in Jesus. He begins to transform you, giving you the ability to love like Jesus loved. Picking up in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So a key phrase in these two verses is in this. In other words, how God has unveiled his love, how God has demonstrated his love, how God has revealed his love, how God has made his love manifest or made it known to us is this way. He has made his love known to us by giving his son. The Son that is co-equal in the Trinity. God the Father giving the Son as propitiation for our sins. That's how His love is made manifest for us. So we talked about this word propitiation a few weeks ago, and it, it kind of means that there is a penalty for our sin, that a holy and just God cannot tolerate rebellion, that in our rebellion we deserve eternal separation from God. But God loved us with such a great love that he paid the price for our sin. That the wrath of God, the just requirement by a holy God, would be paid. So God made his love known to us by paying the price for our rebellion. We were in rebellion, and even while we were in rebellion, God paid the price. Think of it this way. When someone you love, we just had a, a couple birthdays, February is a birthday month in our house. When someone you love has a birthday, you might take them out for their birthday, and you might pay, right? So we have birthdays, we took some kids out for this, and we paid. It's easy. This is a great way to show, your, show someone love, right? How many times has someone done this for you? Taking you out, showing you that they love you by paying, taking you out. It's easy to love the lovable, but... What if that person was your enemy? Would you take them out? Would you pay? And what if the price wasn't just money? What if the price was the life of your own child? Would you take them out? Would you pay that price? Keep in mind, 
This isn't just someone that you met on the street. This isn't someone that you just, you know, kind of had a, a, a falling out. You guys just kind of quit talking at some point in your life. But this is someone who is actively working against you. Someone who actually hates you and is in rebellion against you. Who is going and spreading rumors about you all around the world. Telling everyone how horrible of a person you are. And you show up to dinner and you say, I'm willing to pay the price. I don't think anyone here... I mean, it's just a preposterous kind of circumstance, isn't it? No one here would be like, yes, sign me up for that. But Christ demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were in rebellion against him, shaking our fist against him, saying, God, forget you, I want to do things my way. He died for you. Picking up in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he is he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So when he says no one has ever seen God, some might say, well, what about Moses? Moses saw God face to face, right? And, and even earlier, we, I mean, we believe that Jesus is God. We can look back at, at the first uh, chapter of this, and we know that, that John saw him face to face. That's part of the testimony. We handled him. We saw him. We touched him. We examined that Jesus actually came in the flesh, right? So I think what John is referencing is that no one has seen God the Father. Jesus says the same thing in John six sixty four that no one has seen the Father but the Son. So what did Moses see? I think Moses saw Jesus. Jesus has revealed the Father to us. So no one has seen the Father. The only way to know the Father is through the Son. So how do we see the Father? It is through the love that God has revealed to us through His Son. That's how we know the love of the Father. And the Son has commanded that we love one another. So as we love, we grow in who God made us to be. And we see that God abides in us. Once again, this is the idea of the Holy Spirit indwelling in, in us. This is such an important theme throughout 1 John because it is what gives us confidence. It's not by my strength, it's not by my knowledge, but by the indwelling Holy Spirit that I can be transformed. It's not by my works. I can't work hard enough to make myself love you better. It can only be done by the, by the transformational work of the Holy Spirit. And we see that his love is perfected in us. The word perfected is teleo. It means to complete, uh, to perfect, to accomplish. So the idea is that as we love one another, God continues to grow us and mature us. And that actually reveals God to the world. So people can know God's love by the way we love them. People can know God's love by the way we love them. It's like when one of my kids says something that is just so Jen. For those of you who don't know, Jen is my wife, also the mother of my kids. So sometimes my kids will say something in just the right tone, in just the right way, that's like, wow, you are your mother's kid. It reflects Jen to a T. And when people see Jen and our kids, they're like, wow, 
you are just a spitting image. In fact, the other day we have one son that looks almost identical to what Jen looked like as she was a kid. And the other day someone just was like, you are a little Jen. <laughs> but I could say the same thing about another kid of ours that looks just like me. In fact, I mean, he's, he's the spitting image of me as a kid. And they are reflecting who we are, right? So when we love, we reflect the image of God to others. That's how they can know that God loves them. That's how they get to know the character of God. It reminds me kind of like a disco ball. You know, the light doesn't come from inside the ball, but as light hits the disco ball, it then reflects and bounces all around the room. We're all like little disco balls. God's love hits us, and we reflect that love to others. As God's love transforms us, his light bounces all over, revealing to the world who he is. Picking up in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So here we have again this kind of spiral, right? John talks about love and a lot about the indwelling spirit, and here we have this again. Here he goes into more detail that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, God's love absolutely changes us. It begins to change us. And it is that love that perfects us, that continues to grow you. His love changes and matures us. It's not your work. If it's my work, then I can't have confidence on the day of judgment. My works are flawed. My works can't pay the price. My works can't actually change me. It has to be done by his love for us. So upon putting your faith in Christ, he does the work. He changes you. He makes you new. So in the end, when you stand in front of a holy and just God, you can stand with confidence because you have the Son standing next to you. He is our advocate and our propitiation. So when you stand in front of a holy God, you have the Son standing next to you saying, his debt is paid in full. I know because I paid the debt. So you can have confidence in your advocate who is Jesus, the Son. And he goes on, verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Often when we think about fear in the Bible, we think of the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And I think the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God because uh, uh, to come to a place where you recognize that there is a God who is holy and just, and you are not God, that should be a terrifying thing. That there is a creator that created all of the universe, that created the stars and the moon and the sun and the earth, that there is a creator and he has a moral standard and every single one of us has broken that moral standard. That should strike fear, that should strike terror into our hearts. Because I'm not God. And I have rebelled against God. But that's the beginning of wisdom. To recognize that there is a holy and just God. But upon repentance, upon drawing close to God, 
upon getting to know that God has a love for you, that yes, he is holy and he is just and he is the creator of all, and yet he loved you with such a great love that he came and he paid the price for you, should actually begin to drive that fear out. That you should know, that you can know that you can draw near to him. Earlier we talked about propitiation, and it's the idea that what Jesus did appeased the wrath of God, that Jesus satisfied God. So we don't have to live in fear of disappointing God because Jesus already satisfied God for us. This is so important because religion is fear-based. There is a God out there who is mad, who's just waiting to bring the hammer down on you, who's just waiting to let you have it because you're such a screw-up. You've disappointed him for the last time. So out of fear, we begin to do things Out of fear, we begin to hold back from doing other things. Out of fear, we begin to have spiritual practices. Or out of fear, we sing worship. Or out of fear, we read our Bible. Out of fear, we memorize scripture. Out of fear, we stay in our lane. Out of fear, we do all of these things trying to appease a God that's already been satisfied by Jesus. And we fear we will just be one big disappointment to God. Fear is actually a very effective agent for control. Many parents parents have learned that if you yell at your kids, if you intimidate your kids, they'll respond. You can get your kids to do a lot of things through intimidation and through fear. And we can see how many religions have controlled the masses out of fear. But John is saying Jesus is the propitiation. Jesus paid the price. Jesus appeased. Jesus satisfied. You no longer have to worry about letting God down. God is not just waiting for you to mess up so he can pounce on you. Instead, when we understand God's love for us, demonstrated through his son's death, we can begin to live in freedom. We can make mistakes knowing that God's grace covers them. We can mess up. And instead of running back into the dark room of shame, trying to earn our way back, trying to appease a God that's already been appeased, we can come to a loving Father. A Father who says, I know. I know what you did. And I still love you. A Father who comforts. A Father who does actually discipline, but... He doesn't discipline just to lay the smack down. His discipline is never punitive. His discipline is actually to guide us back to his love. That's the point of his discipline. To bring us back, to draw us back to him. A father who loves us so much that even in our rebellion against him, he gave his son for us. A father who sees you as his masterpiece. It's that kind of love that drives out fear. And as we understand his, his love for us, we can draw near to him. So a good tool for measuring whether or not you operate out of fear or whether or not you operate out of love is when you mess up, when you sin, do you run away from God and hide your sin? Do you try to cover your sin? Do you try to hide it deep down because you don't want anyone to find out because you're so afraid that what happens when people discover my sin? 
Do you try to hide your sin from even God like Adam and Eve did? Or do you run toward God knowing that He still loves you even though you've sinned? He still loves you. Knowing that He already paid the price for your sin. Knowing that the only way to actually be restored and to be healthy again is by running towards God. If God does not withhold our, His love, then neither should we. Sometimes we can withhold love because we think that person doesn't deserve our love. We can be like John and say, hey God, just you know, smote him with some fire. Bring it down, God. And if anyone doesn't deserve God's love, it is in fact us. We have been in rebellion against God. We have shaken our fist at him. Yet he displayed his love for us by dying on the cross for us, for being the propitiation for our sin. So sometimes as parents, we see how effective fear can be. We see movement when we yell at our kids. And because we want obedient kids, we use fear to motivate them. But the problem is, fear will only work for a while. At some point, all the fear is doing is hardening their hearts and actually undermining your love for them. So we should strive to capture our children's hearts. And fear, though a great motivator, will not capture a heart. Fear, though a great motivator, will actually breed rebellion. So as parents, we should be modeling the love, of, the love God has for us so our kids can understand that God's not some sky dictator waiting to get you. When you know God, you don't have to be afraid of Him anymore. You can draw near to a God that loves you. Picking up in verse 19. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who, do, who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So throughout John, we see this contrast between love and hate. And we get that. They seem like opposites. But it's important for us to remember that the original audience, uh, to the original audience, these two terms were not feelings. These two terms were not emotions. It wasn't like I have a great affection over here for this person and I have a great disgust towards this person over here. But it was a matter of living selflessly and selfishly. So to love was to choose to do what is right for someone, even if it's going to cost you. To hate was to do, to act in your own interest. That makes the idea of hating someone a little bit more applicable to us today. It's easy for us to be apathetic towards others and think, I'm not hating them because I don't feel disgust towards them. But the, in the biblical sense, you are hating them because you're putting yourself first. So not only does John contrast love and hate here, but he also contrasts what we have seen with what we have not seen. And the idea here is if you can't see God and love is acting selflessly, how can you actually love God? 
Well, the way that you demonstrate your love for God is by loving those you interact with. The way to demonstrate your love for God is to love his creation. The way you demonstrate your love for God is the way you love his image bearers. That's how you demonstrate your love for God. It's easy for us to say, I love God. We could be a bunch of people meeting together and just chanting, we love God, we love God. Let's shout it from the rooftop. We love God. And I think we see a lot of Christian groups doing this. We love God. And yet, never love others. Never act in the best interest of others. So how do we know if someone really loves God or not? Essentially, John is saying, the way you love God is by loving others. If you say you love God, but you don't love people, then it's just empty talk. So John is giving encouragement here. He is saying that there is something that has changed inside of you. I think he's not coming down hard on these people. I think what he's actually giving them is encouragement. He's saying you have been changed. You are growing. Your ability, your capability of loving more people is growing. You're becoming less and less selfish and more and more selfless. You know how to love. You have been changed by God so that you can love in a way that reflects God. And may we be a congregation that is so changed by God's love that we reflect it to the world. Because God is love, and we are made in his image. Humans desire to love and to be loved, but in a fallen world, a world where we want to be our own God, a world where we want our desires fulfilled, we begin to manufacture love, and that is not real love. That is love light. It will release dopamine, And it will make you feel good for a bit. But real love, the kind we were made for, is from God. And the only way to have this desire fulfilled is to know God. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your love, that your love, you, you demonstrated your love. You revealed your love to us in such a powerful way that we can trust it that you came to this earth even while we were in rebellion against you and you died for us. And we pray that you would help us to reflect this world to others, to love those that hate us, to do what is right for those no matter the cost. In your name we pray, amen.